Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome. Uh, One of the scariest times in my life is when I was part of a coming-of-age program with young people, a nine-month program. And one of the kids in an overnight, all of a sudden, ended up on the floor, shaking throughout his body. And none of us really understood, except for me, because I had experience with this in my family. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about epilepsy. And joining me here today is Dr. James Wheelis, professor and chair of pediatric uh, neurology, uh, and somebody that knows a lot about this. When we think about pediatric neurology, especially where he is from, University of Tennessee Health uh, Science Center, and we think about what it means to think about our people who experience this, and yet the average person, even with the rise in this, doesn't quite know how to recognize it, what to do about it, what not to do about it, and what it is we are now talking about in this world of education and information and solutions. Dr. Willis, it's great to have you here today. I, I don't know if you, you quite get what I was saying, but it's, you, it's one of the scariest things I've ever experienced until I got educated about it. But I don't think I'm any different than anybody else, am I? No, I don't think so. Uh, having someone, you know, kind of witnessing yourself, someone have a seizure is a very uh, frightening and scary event. And as you alluded to, kind of being educated, having some knowledge of what to do, uh, you know, if you happen to be around someone that had one. And this is a very common uh, disorder of the brain, one in 26 Americans. So um if you're around a large enough group of people, whether it's you know recent Super Bowl party or your family and extended family for the holidays, someone you know will will have an epileptic seizure, uh, and it's very helpful you know what to do when they have that. Um, I want to ask you this from your perspective, and believe me, I've just given a snippet of your involvement in this and your innovation and your dedication. I want to ask you this question for you. What is it that has caused you to step all in to educate, inform us, and provide a solution for this? What is it that touched your heart on this? Yeah, so I've always had an interest in epilepsy, but I think, you know, what's really happened in recent years is we've had advances in treatment, and now the goal of seizure freedom, so folks can go about their lives, they can be on treatment, but do what they want to do and not have to worry about that risk of seizures is attainable for most of our patients with epilepsy and getting that kind of news out to them and letting folks know that that's really the expectation, I think is, is really the, like I said, the good news and, and an important thing that I'd like to get out there. 
Well, let's start out by, you know, for those folks that don't really know what we're talking about, let's talk about what epilepsy is, uh, what we know about its uh, source or slash cause, and what we can do to minimize the seizure. Because the seizures, I don't think folks understand what happens during a seizure and how a person is affected by it. So let's give folks some information on that. Yeah, I agree. So we talked about, I mean, it's a really common disorder of the brain, a lot of different causes. The gamut can run from stroke, uh, head trauma, infections, family causes. Uh, for many, we may not know a cause, but the good news is are all of those with modern treatments, we should be able to achieve seizure freedom for most patients. The, the consequences of having a seizure, having a seizure itself can be very debilitating. Uh, if I had one now, I could fall. Uh, yeah. I could have tooth avulsion, laceration, I can break a bone. Uh, for young children, it can cause developmental delays. For adolescents and young adults, it could cause cognitive impairment if they're having ongoing seizures. Uh, and the, the, the most worrisome thing that could happen, I think that's in the back of everybody's mind, is if you have a convulsive seizure and you're asleep, uh, rarely you can die during that. Yeah. 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 And, you know, one of the things, too, that I, I think is important for us to understand is that, you know, there is a cognitive uh, affect on this. And what I mean by that is, you know, something happens to the brain, <laughs> pretty much. And right. there could be a decline as well. Is that correct? No. And folks, and that's why it's so critical to achieve this goal of seizure freedom. Folks that have continuing seizures over time, not all of them, but they can have a cognitive decline or cognitive worsening, and we really want to avoid that. Well, you know, I want to jump over to something that I think most people think is almost surreal or futuristic or Star Trek-like, and that is a conversation on uh, setting a goal of seizure freedom. And that is a term I, I got from the website, but also it is it is an important term. When we talk about seizure freedom, I think that's the innovation that was so far-fetched for so many people. But isn't that now a reality or close to a reality, I think? And so for the majority of our patients with modern treatments, we should be able to achieve that goal of seizure freedom. The medicines can do that from our side as a physician. I'm prescribing the medicine. From the patient's side, there are things that they can do to kind of help support that. Yep. So one of the critical ones is getting enough sleep, getting adequate rest, oh. uh, eating a regular and healthy diet. If they have triggers for the seizures, avoiding those. And then the key one is avoiding any kind of lapse in their treatment. So being late or missing a dose of medicine can really get us in trouble in someone who's been doing well to that point. Yeah, I'm really struck by uh, a friend of mine, and I've watched what she has done in terms of, you know, a holistic approach to her son including, you know, a complete transformation in diet. And I don't know that this is a one size fits all, but certainly for her, the lifestyle issues you mentioned, mentioned, uh, along with medication and making sure that happens. I mean, that's really what I've seen in her and her son as like the winning ticket, right? No, I think this is the goal. We did, there's not a one treatment fits all right. approach here. It's really tailoring the treatment to the patient and their lifestyle. So as physicians, we are asking patients about, you know, are you on other medicines or other treatments? Right. Are you taking supplements? Are you on a specific diet, whether it's for health reasons or other reasons? Yep. 
And then how do we fit the medicine in all that so that it works? And if there are things that we can modify, yeah, which one should we be doing? Because we want to achieve that goal of a seizure freedom. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'm aware of, especially in the field I, I'm in, in psychology, you know, one of the things that we struggle with in this field is, look, if you're prescribing something for somebody, um, all you can do is prescribe. But what do you do to keep people motivated not to miss a treatment or miss a dose or, or miss something. Is that, is that a thing here too for patients? Do they tend to miss taking their medication? And if so, what can be done? Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I often tell, you know, my nurse in clinic, our patients that are doing well, our job is to be their coach. Uh, you know, we're the one that should be cheering them on and their motivator when they come to see us that, you know, keep doing exactly what you're doing. Keep taking your medicine. This is why you're doing so well. Uh, that really is the shift in our role, if you will, from just, you know, being the making all the decisions up front to kind of saying, okay, you're on the right medicine. Now let's make sure we keep doing well uh, and it, encourage them to do that. Because uh, it is hard when you're doing well. It's a chronic disease. We're all human. Do people, are they late? Do they miss medicine? Right. Yes, that can happen. Uh, and we really want to minimize that as much as possible. Um, I know these interviews are really short, uh, but let's talk about in in the world that we're seeing today, and it is a world of possibilities now. So I really want to jump to that for a minute and talk about it. Um, when you think about where you are and what is available now, tell us what the possibilities are. And what I mean by that is, you you know, what you've set up and, and where people can find out more information, because I think we're now moving into the world of possibilities. And I think this has never really quite been the case. Yeah, we have. There's clearly more treatments available now than we've ever had for epilepsy. And like I said, these have allowed us for the majority of our patients to achieve seizure freedom. There's great information available for the patients, but also for loved ones or if they're school teachers or friends or relatives or coworkers. The website is a little bit of a play on words, so it's epilapsy.com, E-P-I-L-A-P-S-E-Y. Yeah. And, and we've named it that because we really want them to avoid any lapses in their care that right. could lead to seizure. We want them to achieve this goal of the seizure freedom. Well, and I really think that this is the world we're stepping into now with the technology that is available, you know, to provide innovative solutions for people of all ages so that they, in the busy world we live in, and we live in a busy world, that we don't forget. And it's not that we don't want to be well, it's that in the busy world we live in, we just simply forget, right? You're absolutely right. It's, 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 it's fitting in into the patient's kind of lifestyle schedule so that they know and, and what works for them. And that's the, the tailoring, and that's where we need great communication between families and their doctor. Um, I want to ask you one last question, actually, too. I, I want to hear from your perspective. What do you see the future here? Where do you see the future going with some of the innovations here? Yeah, so I think as we go forward, I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about, but we have more people than ever with epilepsy in the United States. Uh, thankfully, we have more treatments and more new treatments on yeah. the horizon to help them. But I really think we're going to continue to see this marriage of really thinking more about the patient's lifestyle, the rest of their life, and fitting our medicines into that, that the older model was, you know, here are the medicines that you figure out how to fit them in. And I think we really you know, come back from that. So let's figure out how we fit them into what people are really doing out there to get 
this goal of seizure freedom. Well, I, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I know you've got interview after interview. Uh, please give out the website again. And then my last question for you is, what is the personal message you want to leave us with today? Yeah, so I think the website, great information, it's epilapsy.com, E-P-I-L-A-P-S-E-Y. And then I would encourage you, if you've had epilepsy for a period of time, you're not at seizure freedom, revisit with your neurologist or be seen by a specialist, a neurologist who specializes in epilepsy, because there really are more treatments than ever, and see if they can't get you to seizure freedom. That's, that's really the goal. Um, and I want to just say to everybody, when you go to the website, epilepsy, uh, com. One of the things I want to say, there's a portal for both patients and for doctors and practitioners. So please pass this on. Thank you so much for today. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay, everybody, lots of information about this. And so we want to make sure that you pass it on. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Your inspiration all day on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hey, everybody, welcome. I've got some great information for you today. Thanks to Dr. Jonathan Chen joining me here today, Chief of Cardi Cardio Cardiothoracic Surgery. But more importantly, we're talking about the cardiac center, especially the cardiac center at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia and what's going on there. Look, the birth of a child is an amazing occasion for everybody. But there are families, more than 40,000 of them, where American babies born each year, each year, suffer what we call disease in the heart. There are different forms of it. Today, Dr. Chen is going to talk specifically about what that means. But more importantly, there are things we can do. Dr. Chen, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me on. I think people would be a little staggered to find out how many babies are born each year. Um, and as, as I was saying earlier, you think about this as a momentous kind of event in life, and yet it can be emotionally, physically, and shocking to parents. Tell us about this, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, uh, congenital heart disease is the most common birth defect. It affects about 1% of the population. So they say one in 120. That means in the U.S. there are probably about 40,000 babies born every year with congenital heart disease. Now, many of those kids will not need any intervention over time. It's what we would say is sort of benign heart disease. And those are kids where they will, um, the problems that they have, they'll either outgrow or the problems will sort of eliminate themselves. Uh, but for other kids, uh, they can require either a surgery or some other intervention in the first hours to, you know, days to weeks of life or even further on. And it's something that um, we can monitor over time. Uh, so it kind of depends on the severity of the disease. Now, most uh, congenital heart disease, the complex congenital heart disease, will, can be uh, detected on a, a fetal ultrasound as early as probably about 19 to 20 weeks uh, gestation. So it can be detected quite early. You know, this is really, when I think about this and I think about, you know, who you are and, you know, your credentials, you know, what you do, what your passion is, what you've decided to commit to for your life and for your career, I can't help but think of how deeply this must touch you. Yeah, you know, it's, it is incredible to, uh, you know, uh, the most congenital heart surgeons train initially to be adult heart surgeons. Yes. And at some point we sort of differentiate, right? And, and I think one of the important parts for the decision-making is that it, uh, adult heart surgery is 
magnificent and it has great impact on people's lives. But operating on a 90-year-old uh, will hopefully get them, what, 10 good years of life if we're, if we're lucky. You operate on a newborn, you're looking, if you if they do well, you we're looking at 90 years of life saved. And that's just a whole yeah. different you know, equation. So it is a very rewarding field yeah. in that way. And, you know, and that's really why uh, there are a couple of things I want to talk with you about today as well. And that is many people don't realize the sort of progression of, of things that have been done in medicine and science. Um, and I think it's important to talk about that. You know, when we talk about these babies being born, what is it that you see to bring us to where we are today? What is it that you see that has been done um, that makes this more than a conversation, but a platform of hope for parents and children alike? Well, you know, I think when you look at the evolution of um, the management of kids with, with congenital heart disease, really it's a, it's a relatively new field, right? Yeah. I think about the field of medicine is many, several hundreds of years old, but like this field is largely probably that 50 to 70 years old. And um, each, each, you know, year for sure. And each kind of generation, we do it better. Things are being more done more now transcatheter. So less invasively enough so that the new statistic is that there are more adults alive with repaired and unrepaired congenital heart disease. than there are kids with congenital heart disease, which is, you know, that's an amazing statistic. And that is because we become better and better at, at doing these procedures and getting people to live their, their best and longest and healthiest lives. And so what is actually an interesting challenge for us now is that we have to start training the uh, adult congenital cardiology community so that they can better take care of adults with congenital heart disease. That never used to be a burden, but it's a huge problem now because it is such a growing field. Yeah. My dad uh, passed away from um, congenital heart disease. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And my favorite uncle at a very, very young age, very young age, unexpectedly passed away. Um, and my mom. And so, you know, you're talking about a field that has always been a mystery for me. And I often wondered, Dr. Chen, I often wondered how long perhaps my uncle, for example, how long he may have had the disease undetected. But isn't that really where we are today now? Being able to detect things, to be, be able to diagnose things in, in ways that we have never been able to do before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about the fidelity of a 19-week fetal echocardiogram. So this is an ultrasound that is specifically looking only at the heart and great vessels in a 19-week fetus. And they're able to, for the most part, diagnose almost all the major uh, problems that the baby will have once they're born. They, want that, they won't be able to tell the true nuance of some of the smallest structures, but it's absolutely remarkable. And when I started in this field, which was a long time ago, we knew the diagnoses about 15% of the time before the babies are born. These days, we know the diagnosis about 85% of the time before the babies are born. And that in and of itself change, has changed our whole outlook on how babies are managed in those first hours, because now it's not a five alarm fire with yeah. a you know Sherlock Holmes uh, deduction about what the problem is. We know exactly what the problem is. Yeah. and how we're going to prepare for that. It's it's a whole complete game changer. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about this. And I know that this is a, a short, short interview. But I must say that the work that you do, given the history in my family, 
um, it goes beyond being pioneering because, you know, my sense is, is from you and from looking at all the amazing things you've done is that th this is really deeply embedded in who you are. You are so committed to the health and well-being of, of these babies. And there's nothing more important, I think, today in the world than looking at a hospital or a physician that really does care. And that is my sense based on my research about what you've done. I want to ask you this. As you sit where you are now and you peer into the future, what are you most thrilled about in the way that your field is shaping itself up? Uh, you know, I think what, you know, there's, there's lots to the future that's to be um, optimistic about. You know, technology keeps making smaller devices and catheters and allows us to operate on smaller kids. Um, you know, I think medications obviously get better. There's stem cell therapies. I do think for our field, what we're coming to realize is that every kid is different. Every heart disease is different. And, and we need to figure out, and we are figuring out, how to create sort of patient-specific therapies, be they specific valves that we implant, is it 3D imaging that will help us uh, imagine a different kind of operation that we would do. And that, uh, you know, integrates this new you know, virtual reality world in some cases. Yeah. Uh, but it's really, you know, it's an exciting time to be there because you think about the operations that you did even just 10 years ago and that the ones we're doing today are so much better for having all this, this uh, diagnostic technology that helps guide us. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's an exciting time to be part of the field. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I want to, first of all, thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, last, last question. Oh, but first of all, please tell folks how they can find out more, please. Sure. I think the, you know, the best uh, um, place, starting place, I think, is our website, which is heart.chop.edu. So heart.chop.edu. And I want to ask you this question. Um, we've talked about a number of different things. I would love for you to just share with us your personal message. And of course, if there's anything here that I've left out, and, you know, please educate us. Well, you know, I think the, the important thing, you know, this being uh, Heart uh, Awareness Month is really, I think, to raise awareness in general about the, the magnitude of uh, congenital heart disease, but also for parents uh, to get involved prenatally, you know, once the, that the outlook is actually very good for, all the, for these kids, but you have to be um, uh, taken, uh, uh, taking advantage of the uh, kind of comprehensive big cardiac centers that have this ability and access to all these different technologies and uh, diagnostics that can really help the kids long term. Wow. Thank you so much. Again, website, if you don't mind. Uh, Heart.chop.edu. Awesome. Hey, everybody, lots of information on this, but most important message of the week is, you know, don't step out and think about this without stepping out fully embraced in hope and in science. Thank you so much, Dr. Chen. Thank you for today. Great. Thank you. All right. Let's take a short break, everyone. We'll be right back. Preceding audio was via a Skype call. The Coach Peggy Show, all things wellness with me, Coach Peggy Wilms. Tune in every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on TransformationTalkRadio.com, where I'm going to talk to you about all things wellness. We go way beyond nutrition and fitness, you guys. It's the Coach Peggy Show. We get bold, we get badass, and we never go half in. And for more information, you can visit me at All Things Wellness. Hi, I'm Laura Meeks, and the most common problem that my clients face is all work and no play. This is why I created Fly High Living. 
I help you develop a balanced life plan and guide you to a place where you love to wake up in the morning. Call 888-666-1570 or go to flyhighliving.com to sign up for the four-week Flight Plan for Life course. Are you meeting your sales goals? Or maybe your business plan could use a dose of the divine. Tune in to Divinely Driven Results with faith-based business coach Elise Smith on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Coach Elise Smith helps listeners get unstuck from their business plateau and become empowered through divine guidance. Build up belief in yourself and your dreams and learn business strategies that work for you for real lasting results. Learn more by visiting www.DivinelyDrivenResults.com. Some people dream of freedom before they know it even once. What happens when we find ourselves in unimaginable freedom? Retired, children are grown, we've moved on from caregiving, and don't know what to do with all that time you never had before. Well, it's your life. It's up to you now. On the hit new show, Fresh Courage, it's your time to shine with host Sharon Rolfe on TransformationTalkRadio.com. The following audio is via a Skype call. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. And it really is good news for a lot of reasons. One is we have been talking about the flu. And every year, it seems that what we say about it is that, boy, you better get yourself taken care of. Well, how many Americans do you think get the flu each year? Do you think it's 10 million? Do you think it's 20 million? Well, I'm not going to answer that question. Dr. Cedric Spock is joining me here today. He is a physician specializing in infectious disease. And you will be shocked when you hear the number of people that get it. But more importantly, here's a question. Do they have to get the flu? Dr. Spock, great to have you. Wow, that's quite an introduction, and I guess I'm expected <laughs> to answer the other. Uh, so, uh, right, so they're, they're estimating, the CDC is estimating this year uh, 45 million Americans will come down with influenza, uh, which is right around the middle area of where influenza's burden is. A few years ago, the number got as high as 70 million. Sometimes it gets into the teens. Um, and so every year when the flu happens, it really is a lot like what our meteorologists are doing with weather. Like they try and predict things and a lot of times they get it and sometimes they don't. <laughs> um, and, and that's part of the additional challenge of the flu because, you know, sometimes we get like this fatigue, you know, like you get warned about the weather, they say it's going to snow and then it doesn't. And then you're like, all right, the weatherman, they missed it. They got it wrong. Right, right. Well, actually, yeah, you know, it's the same with the flu. So um as far as protecting yourself from the flu, vaccination is still a very effective way to reduce the burden of illness. However, vaccination is not 100% effective like other vaccine-preventable illnesses. And so that adds to that sort of, wait a minute, the flu, it's confusing, it's common, and I'm supposed to get a flu shot, except it doesn't always work. Well, that's a strange sales pitch. Here, take a shot, it might not work. But we do know that if you don't vaccinate, you don't get any protection. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I love about the research that you're, you're, we're talking about here today, the Harris Poll survey that was done is that uh, I, I would imagine that almost everybody out there says, uh, I am too busy to get sick. And yet how many people, when they say that I'm too busy to get sick, literally do anything 
to prevent getting sick. What is the connection there? Well, it's it's that's that's a great comment because yeah, we're all too busy to get sick. We're all <laughs> you know hyperactive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but we know from clinical trials that if influenza strikes in somebody who's otherwise healthy, they're going to be sick for at least, or rather, on average, three point five days. Um, that's a long time. Uh, the other thing, too, I want to talk about is, um, and I think this is not talked about enough, we've referenced the flu as this unidimensional thing, and perhaps it is. But the question is, aren't there people that if they actually contract the flu, come down with the flu, there are complications that could happen. And I, I don't know that folks know the relationship between those things. Uh, especially what I was referencing on your website, those things and the complications that arise and when to even decide to do something about it. Well, from the get-go, if we know that influenza makes you sick for three and a half days in the best of situations, then if you can get a day back, that helps. But the other thing is, is that uh, influenza does have what we refer to as secondary complications. Mm -hmm. and, and the secondary complications can lead to hospitalization, can lead to needing intensive care unit care, and without sounding alarmist, can actually lead to severe consequences, including death. So let's talk about the flu. Let's get down into this a little bit. First of all, um, signs and symptoms. And then, you know, I really want to talk about what people do if they can, if they do contract the flu. But also, I want to make sure that folks have the information from the survey that you're taking. But how do we even recognize that that's what's going on? Because I got to tell you, I have heard more people say, wow, I think I'm having allergies. I mean, everything's an allergy. So give us the, uh, give us the information we need to know to distinguish between, uh, like I've got an allergy or I've got the flu. So the flu is typically going to be associated with a high fever, and a high fever means a temperature of 101.5 or greater. Mm -hmm. And then the flu comes along with these other symptoms like runny nose, sore throat, aches and pains, and it all comes together, and it's all sudden. And the suddenness is kind of really a hallmark of the flu because the virus takes hold, and then it just starts to multiply like crazy, and then that's when the person becomes sick. Um and so uh, recognizing that, that with the fever, and then also being aware that there are interventions that can be provided, you know, antivirals that can treat it. So if you get sick with the flu, get checked. So if you have the flu, you can then take the medicine and then you can get better faster. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the survey because I think it's important too. I was really a little stunned by some of the information, but let's talk about the survey and tell folks how they can take a look at it for themselves. So the survey was uh, put out by Genentech. And so, you know, we're kind of teaming up together to kind of get the word out. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like, the word needs to come out because infectious diseases love to take advantage of ignorance. So if you don't know about the infection, that doesn't protect you from the infection. Um, and this is a feature that is universal across all sorts of infectious diseases. So they did the survey and they asked some typical questions and then some other questions just kind of assessing fund of knowledge in about 2,000 respondents across the country. And they found that one in four of those respondents didn't think the flu was serious at all. 
And when I see that kind of information, that's telling me that the flu is winning. Yeah. If you don't realize the flu is serious, the flu can still be serious regardless of whether or not you knew that it was or wasn't serious. Yeah. I mean, we really, unless you've had the kind of fever that we're talking about, and I've had that, uh, we don't really know the impact of it. As a matter of fact, you know, there are things that could happen as a result of having that eye fever that can affect multiple organs too. And I think the question really is today, at least one of the questions is, you know, let's talk about what it is that we as people think and what it is we do that's working and not working. Because I know that I've heard more often than not is, you know, I'm just going to roll it out, drink the chicken soup. I'm going to power through it. And there we go. And I'm not sure that that is a viable option if you actually do have the flu. You know, I'm not sure if if that's going to really take care of what needs to be taken care of. Can you fill us in on that? Well, th- those are all very good points because, in a way, we can say that <clears throat> that approach is old-fashioned. You know, 50 yeah. years ago, that was the appropriate thing to say. You yeah. Because, like, we didn't have any medicines. We couldn't even really test for the flu, et cetera. But now you can go and you can get a rapid flu test that isn't always a perfect test, but it's very good. And if it's positive, it's positive. And then you can get something like Zofluza, the single-dose treatment for the flu. And the studies have shown that instead of being sick for 3.5 days, that you get a reduction in your symptoms by 26 hours. So you get a day back. And, you know, when you consider that a lot of us, uh, you know, when we work, we don't really have much PTO or, you know, if I don't go to work, I don't get paid. And this is a very important stressor for a lot of uh, a lot of us. Uh, so getting the word out that there's an antiviral available, I think, is very helpful for us so that we can know right, I've got the flu. I got options. All right. So uh, really quickly, I know you've got to run off here, but um, I, I want to make sure we mention where folks can find more information. Uh, but also, you know, what can you bring to the forefront about what people can actually do? What is the solution here for folks? Well, we know that the vaccination does help. Mm-hmm. And we know that the more vaccination helps more. So the healthy people need to be vaccinated to protect the, the, the people that have chronic medical conditions. Right. So I kind of have a little saying, it's not too late to vaccinate. Yeah. You know? And so in the midst of the flu, if you hear that the flu is going on, you can still go get a flu shot. And that may help you. But it also may help people around you that you may or may not have known had chronic medical conditions. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you need more information about the flu, I encourage you to go to the website. You can go to Zofluza.com and you can learn about the medication. You can learn about side effects of the medication. You can also then discuss it further with your clinic. And then always go and refer to the CDC website um, so that you can see information about the flu and how it affects your area. Wow. Hey. Thank you, Dr. Spock, for joining us here today. One last question. Uh, please make sure that um, folks have all the information they need. But I'd like to know what your personal message is, what you'd like to leave us with today. My personal message is, is you know, get the flu shot. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I, did, I got my master's in public health at the University of Washington, and I learned a lot about how important the flu shot was for public health. 
and uh, cannot emphasize enough. And when patients tell me they don't want to get the flu shot, I always remind them, the flu shot never caused any harm, but the flu certainly does. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Spock. Thank you for joining us here today. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Inspire. Create. Empower. Only on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. I'm really thrilled about this segment that is uh, being shared with all of you. And the reason that I'm really thrilled about it is many of you have heard me talk about um, my degree of activism in a world that uh, many of you don't know about, you don't think about it. And you've also heard me talk about the history of my family. my sister, my nieces, their husbands, their family. And when I think about this and I think about our family and, you know, who our family consists of, uh, we're multi-generational and multi-generational in a lot of ways. And we have people in our family that you probably wouldn't expect you know, people that are both brown and both white and, you know, have different needs. But the one thing I will tell you is our awareness in our family of HIV and AIDS certainly has been accelerated to a new depth and a new breadth by the beautiful blend that we have in our family. But here's today. And joining us here is Dr. Eugene McRae. Director of the Division of HIV AIDS Prevention, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, with something that is so very, very important. You know, are we or do we know the most powerful tools in history and how they give us an opportunity to end the HIV epidemic? So here we are. There are disparities in care and treatment that contribute to continue to burden and be burdensome among African-Americans. How do I know that? I just gave you a snippet of my family and what my family looks like if you were to see us in a family photo. But the question really is, what are we doing? And I will tell you this without spending a lot more time. I know what it's like to take a family member, a family member of of color, into an emergency ward in a hospital. And I can tell you what that feels like. But this is not my show. This is an interview with Dr. Eugene McRae. Dr. McCray, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, and I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about, first of all, you know, the issue uh, that I want to capture with you, right? And I love that we're talking about when you know better, you do better. Boy, I'll tell you, we could have used a lot of that in the past couple of weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's a passion and a purpose to you being here today. And I want to ask you what that is and how you see the state of affairs right now and the disparities that come to bear and into the forefront of consciousness today, or not. Sure. So, you know, I've been around for many years working on HIV and other infectious diseases. And the theme for this year's National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day is we're in this together. And for me, that's critically important because I come like you, I come from a big family that's um, culturally diverse, yep. um, people of all colors, and it's really important 
for if we're going to really end this epidemic in our community, that we have the support from friends, family, colleagues, and partners to help us really overcome some of the some of the negative impacts of the ongoing health disparities and stigma that is that is really perpetuating this disease. You know, so, you you and I could spend probably hours really talking about what we've seen, but your message today goes beyond important to me because the treatment and the care is unconscionable. When I think about what my family has experienced, what my sister has experienced with her kids, it, 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 there's, I cannot even find words except the quote from Maya Angelou. How, how far off are we with getting care, right? getting care mm -hmm. for for people that need it, the people that we're talking about, the people in the African-American community, as well as others. So, you know, what's encouraging is that the trends, the trends um, of the, from the data that we have now really has shown that there are persistent disparities that, have, that still occur in our community, mm -hmm. but there are some encouraging decreases that we're seeing in the recent years. Awesome. For example, we know that we've seen significant decreases in diagnosis among African-American women, as much as 27% in the last seven to eight years. And we've seen a lot of decreases among young African-American gay and bisexual men ages 13 to 24, which is around 11 percent. Mm -hmm. um, so those are encouraging trends. However, we, more than 40 percent of the new infections in the United States are still occurring in African-American, despite us being only about 13 percent of the U.S. population. And our data really continue to speak to the importance of intens intensifying our efforts to decrease HIV among African-Americans overall. And for me, the time to act is now. We really have an opportunity to really do, um, to achieve some impossible, some challenging outcome. And, and, and with that, we have a wonderful opportunity to, to reduce the racial disparities that we're seeing in HIV in this country. What are you most optimistic about? And what I mean by that is, you know, what are you seeing in terms of you know, the statement you made, like we have some opportunities like now. Let's talk about what some of those are. Yes, yes. I'm more than happy to. Yeah. One, we we have the tools um, to really make a huge difference in this um, epidemic, especially in our community. The challenge we have is making sure those tools get to our mm -hmm. community and people have the ability to use the tools um, to help them improve the quality of their life. And several of those tools uh, include, well, for first, first, the first thing is that testing. Testing is critically important because if you test and you test negative, there are opportunities to use some really powerful prevention tools that can help you stay, um, stay free of the virus. And one of those tools is something called pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. Condoms are also very important because PrEP is not for everyone, but, but, but we know that pre-exposure prophylaxis is very effective in preventing the sexual transmission of HIV. It's as much as 97 to 98% effective. And what that means is someone who is HIV negative and, and at, at risk taking a pill mm -hmm. every day, one pill every day that can prevent them from um, getting, um, getting the virus. The second big tool that I think is underutilized in our community uh, is when you get tested and you test positive, 
treatment is prevention. We know that if if you test positive and you get on treatment as quickly as possible and your virus is is um, suppressed to an undetectable level, you have effectively no risk of transmitting the virus. So we now really know that treatment is prevention. And, and in our community, the African-American community, treatment treatment and viral suppression is not where it needs to be. Um, the overall target for the nation is, is 85%. And in my, our community is well under, it's under 60%, meaning that 60% of people who know they have HIV are not virally suppressed, meaning that they, the ones who are not, whose virus are not suppressed, is not suppressed, can transmit virus to others. Um, and so getting people diagnosed and on treatment and getting, and supporting them in a, in a positive way so that they can get their virus under control is critically important. And that's really one of the most important thing that we can do in our community. So those are the, so the, the treatment and the mm-hmm. prevention are the two big tools that I think are really out there that we have to utilize better. I wanted to ask you a, 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 a couple of really important things for me, at least is, you know, first of all, um, you know, for you to be the, and congratulations, by the way, um, you know, to have a new position that really puts you in the helm. And what I mean by that is to be in the helm of not just making important decisions, but making sure others understand the importance of the decisions, understand the importance of what needs to be done. Uh, and I want to ask you is, you know, what your vision is. Um, not that you, not that you haven't had the ability to do that before, Dr. McRae. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying now that, you know, where you sit today may put you in a little bit different of a position to make a difference, perhaps that you haven't been able to make before. Uh, I'm just curious about that. What you see now in this position, your vision might be in the action. Sure. So my, my vision is simple. I would like to see over the next 10 years um, the, um, the elimination of HIV as a significant public health threat in the U.S. And to do that, we have to address the health disparities that we're seeing yeah. um, with this disease. And, and I think, um, not I think, I know that if there's, there's, there was a recent initiative that, that, that was announced by by um the, by our by the president that is called the in the HIV epidemic initiative, mm-hmm. and we got funding in F, in fiscal year 2020 this 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 year yeah. to really jumpstart to just get that initiative going, and and if the funding continues in the next 10 years, we will be able to get to a point where we see less than 3,000 HIV infections in the U.S. per year. And but for that to happen, we've got to do things different. Differently, yeah. we've got to for do things more intentionally. For example, the community needs to be at the front and center of this response much more than they've been in the past. Which means that there has to be deliberate attempts, deliberate um, efforts to go to the community to hear from the community about what their needs are. And in many of in our community, it's going to be mean addressing a number of things. Some of the social determinants of health, like um, poverty, mm-hmm. like homelessness, yep. um, or unstable housing, mental health, and, uh, and and then dealing with racism and stigma. Yeah. Um, so, 
So those are all things that, as part of EAG, I, I have been pushing, and, and people are hearing it. And so as part of the planning for this initiative, we are going to the community and hearing what they think are the right solutions for their community. And those solutions are going to differ depending on what community you go into. So, so, so me, for me, my vision is one of, of over the next 10 years having no, having less than 3,000 HIV infections per year. And that's what I, we define as, um, as elimination. And I, and I really feel strongly that it can happen, but we've got to, do it. We've got a lot of work and we've got to engage the community. Yeah, I, I am so glad that you're taking that approach. Uh, you know, uh, I remember when I first started um, way back and you know, I don't even want to tell you what year it is. But the, the number one, I know, right, the number one <laughs> challenge I had was literally when I see my brother-in-law on a hospital floor that nobody wants to take care of because he is a person of color and you're standing there and screaming at the top of your lungs. There's just no words to describe that situation. But the thing that I love about what you said is, you know, as I began down, you know, this pathway to really raise awareness is we got to turn this around right here. We have to turn around the notion that what you're talking about in treatment and prevention is a one size fits all. So when you're talking about going into the community and asking the community and that communities are different, that is a breakthrough in itself, I think. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What do you think? <laughs> no, no, I think it definitely is. And, you know, for years, the community has been telling us what they think will work, but I don't think we've been listening. No, <laughs> but that now I now that now I there is a deliberate attempt, and and part of it is based on results that we've seen in places where they've taken this approach, like New York City and mm -hmm. San Francisco, and even some of the smaller places, like um like one of the sites where we're working now, um, East Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They are beginning to see significant decreases because what they did is they went to the community and they developed a plan that was community driven. And they allowed opportunity to be opportunities to be innovative and do and try some things that that were different. And everything didn't work, but but yeah. but you know you you have to allow some innovation. And 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 I would say the majority are going to be successful because the community is invested and they are part of the they are part of the solution. Absolutely. And you know I'm from New York. I know you're they they're telling you I live in Seattle. Yeah, that's true. But I'm born and raised in New York and New Jersey, and I I ran focus groups. And I'll tell you why I'm so glad to hear you talk about this. What is it now? Like I don't know. Thirty years later, I ran a focus group once out in New York, and as a facilitator you take down the notes and you provide the information. They never showed us the final summary. And I remember getting my hands on a copy of the final summary. And I looked at my, my VP and I said, I got to tell you, you, these people must not have been in the room that I'm in, I was in because you can't have a summary that provides a unidimensional approach. And I'm so thrilled to hear you saying, we, we are unique and we need unique solutions. Thank you for doing that. Um, look, I know your time is short. I could go on forever. I want to ask you, how do people find out more? But more importantly, I, I want to know what your invitation is to folks today 
what would you like to say to the folks listening to, to say, look, these are things you can do. And I think we got to be all in and doing them. Sure. So um, I'd first like to start by saying, you know, every day we can get involved in, in our prevention efforts by really getting tested and supporting mm -hmm. your friends and, and others to get tested because testing is the key. And then if you get when you get tested and you're te and you test negative, you need to you know be clear about what your risks are and use the prevention tools that are available to keep you from acqu from acquiring HIV. And those are things like pre-exposure prophylaxis, condoms, yep. et cetera. And then if you get tested and you test positive, get get on treatment as, as quickly as possible. Treatment is easy, is 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 safe. It basically the treatment amount now is really one pill that has maybe that three drugs in it and it's very effective and with very little to no side effects. So get on treatment and stay on treatment and then you will protect yourself, which means that you can live basically a normal life and you will protect your partner so because you're not able to transmit the virus to them. And so those are that's the that's the big message for me. Yeah, and I think it's a big message. I want to commend you on this because I know what it's like to take a message like this out. But I'll tell you the one thing that you know I really admire and honor about you in doing this here is without communicating and sharing information and getting the information to the people that we want to take those actions, that's gotta be our number one initiative because people mm -hmm do a lot with information. And I think that's yeah. what you're doing, isn't it? Yes, that's that's definitely my my goal. And and, and I want to just end by saying it's really actions and not words yep. that will carry us toward the goal of ending the HIV epidemic. Yeah, boy, I'm telling you it is. Uh, you know, yes. <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you, I could go back to the day I dragged my... <laughs> my I dragged my nephew-in-law through the hospital doors and they were coming after me with handcuffs. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, bring it on. We have got to do something. Yeah. Thank you so much, doctor. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Hey, everybody, this is Thank Dr. You. Eugene McRae. And I'm telling you, this is very, very important. Please pass this information along. Any website, anything that we can send people to? Yeah, so I think I said that testing is the first key step. Yeah. And, and, and the website, you can visit gettested.cdc.gov. Again, that's gettested.cdc.gov to find free, fast, and confidential HIV testing sites that are near you. Or you can call. There's an 800 number that people can call also. Okay. Um, it's 1-800-CDC-INFO. 1-800-CDC-INFO. CDC info, I-N-F-O. And I just want to say this last thing for those of you out there, you can go ahead and Google Dr. Eugene McRae because this interview is not the only interview. You can see interviews he's done, television clips. He's out there, World uh, AIDS Day. Just get on and listen to his message. Thank you, Dr. McRae. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.